You're listening to Women Making Waves. Isn't it a small world, really? Here on Women Making Waves, sometimes you can join the dots up between the guests that we have. And this guest that we have coming up next mentions in her interview one of our previous guests, the previous guest being Morgan Sieg. Now, we had her in and she was talking about the Antarctic and women in the Antarctic, whereas the guest that we're having today is Professor Melody Clark. She also talks about the Antarctic. They know each other. Of course, it is Cambridge and it's a small world in that sense, but it's equally interesting talking to these women individually because they all have something to give. And I loved it. And the the whole interview, I, I, I listened to it and it was just fantastic. And Jan... Our contributor's done a great job with this one, hasn't she? Yes, she has indeed. And they also mention climate change, very topical again. Another topic that comes up again and again at the moment. So we'll be listening now to Professor Melody Clark talking to our contributor, Jan Moore. My work really has two aspects. So it's looking at how Antarctic marine invertebrates have adapted to life in the freezing ocean. And on the other hand... It's obviously looking at their responses to change, so how they respond to one or two degrees of of warming. I recently caught up with Professor Melody Clark, who's an individual merit promotion scientist and project leader at British Antarctic Survey. My friend Mel won the Senior Prize for Outstanding Women in Marine Biological Sciences a few years back, but I've always wondered what she actually does day to day, so I started by asking her. Well, as a project leader, I'm responsible for leading the science and developing science projects. So unfortunately, that does involve quite a lot of administration. But, you know, the great thing is I get to supervise project students and also get involved in the research as well. So my work really has two aspects. So it's looking at how Antarctic marine invertebrates have adapted to life in the freezing ocean, because basically they live more or less permanently at zero degrees. And we know some very obvious adaptations, such as antifreeze in fish, but we don't really know a lot about the subtle changes they've made to their genes to enable them to function effectively at at zero degrees. On the other hand, it's obviously looking at their responses to change, so how they respond to one or two degrees of, of warming. Are they still okay they look fine but are they really and that's where as a molecular biologist the technique really comes in because you start to look at what's happening in their cells is their immune system compromised Uh, is their reproduction uh, affected by this and you can only really tell that by looking at, at the genes that they produce in response to slightly warmer temperatures right so some of that will be work that you'll actually do here in cambridge in on yes. the site in bass but actually some of that then must be in the field in the very cold south <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, some, some of it is because some of the animals we we can't keep them long term and it, obviously it, it takes a long time for the animals to come back because they have to come back on the ship so it can take two, three months, depending on if the ship takes a slight detour, uh, which point they're in aquarium tanks and artificial aquariums. So that's not so good in terms of trying to understand their uh, reactions. Mm. So, yes, I, I do go down to the Antarctic, and I went down in January for my seventh trip. Gosh. And when you go, how long are you there for? It does vary, but about two months right. normally, uh, of which pro- a week is, is travel, basically. Yeah. Because this is for women making waves, it's really interesting to find out, are there greater challenges being a woman being on, in that environment? Because it's quite a sort of 
you're cut off from everybody else, you're working very closely with other scientists. I personally haven't found it a challenge at all because you're part of a team and you just do your job and everybody just gets on with it and it's terribly professional and supportive. And yes, you are thousands of miles away, but these days we're much more in contact with with the UK. You know, we can, there's telephone calls. Um, in fact, the extension number in the Bond Lab, where I work, is actually an extension to a Cambridge number. <laughs> Which is all a bit strange, really. <laughs> Very strange, indeed. And, you know, there's internet. So you're not nearly as disconnected as you were in the past, where mm. you, they used to send the men off for months yes, on end absolutely. with just the telex machine. <laughs> so have you noticed, then, in your scientific work, that actually there's maybe more women involved in, in your branch of science now than... There were, or perhaps it's always been fairly equal. No, um, well, up until about the 1980s, women were not allowed to go to the Antarctic. Oh, really? With the British Antarctic Survey. Gosh. Full, full stop. And the first British woman, Janet Thompson, went to the Antarctic in 1983. And Liz Morris was the first woman to do deep field work in 87, 88. So it's relatively recent I guess yes. depending on how old you are yes <laughs> I'm not asking <laughs> but now it's it's really really changed and bass on the science side and science support side it's actually 40% women mm. which is a big change from previously and they know it's still an issue they still have to improve and they've they've put measures in to try and encourage women through the career path Certainly, when you get to when you start with PhD students or first career postdocs, they are fifty-fifty, right, male female. But there's the kind of leaky pipe, I think it's called, that as you get higher up the ranks, the number of women do decrease quite significantly. Mm. Yes, and that, and that is still an issue. But you know, everybody knows it's an issue, and they're working right. towards improving that. And that's an issue in so many professions. For, exactly for all the reasons that, that we understand. Well, that's really interesting i had no idea that it's relatively recently that that people can actually go yes i i mean women could work for the british antarctic survey yes. but they just absolutely weren't allowed to go gosh. to the antarctic gosh that's amazing now recently you've been to the hay festival but you weren't there to read the books <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing at the hay festival well, the they have uh, an association with the University of Cambridge, the Hay Festival does. Oh, right. And so Cambridge University put on a certain number of events each year. And this year, one of the events was a discussion panel, Female Voices and Climate Change. And I was invited to be part of that discussion panel. How did that all go? Yes, it actually, it actually went really well. It was really interesting to do. It's sometimes quite a challenge doing different things like that because mm. I was just given six minutes to talk <laughs> so I had to do I was told three minutes on your science and three minutes on the issues of science communication so it does actually take quite a lot of preparation work and and thought and practice to try and just cram everything yes. into such a sh short space of time yes and then of course you get questions from the audience from the chair that yes you know you have no control over and you have no idea what they might ask you <laughs> so were the other panelists scientists then Yes, they were. So uh, Morgan is um, doing a PhD in gender science, uh, in Antarctic science. Uh, Chandrika Nath, who's the executive director of the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, is a former glaciologist and she's now moved back into science. She was a science advisor for the UK government. And Ragnhild is 
just finished a PhD and she's at the Scott Pollard and she was a social anthropologist. So oh, right. it's a big mix, but the yes. idea was to get a panel of women talking about climate science. Yes. And did you get really interesting questions from, from the audience then? Yes, we did. I think a lot of people were intrigued about, as you were, about the fact that women weren't allowed to go yes. to the Antarctic. Yes. And... Yeah, people are fascinated by that because you you don't really think about that because these days on the media, you just get a, a transmission from the Antarctic. It's men, women, you know, there isn't the distinction like there used to be in the old days, yeah. really. Yes, and I think it's the fascination with the type of work that you're doing, though, uh, apart from the fact that obviously this is a relatively new experience for women from the 1980s, yes. but the impact of the work that you're doing in, in terms of climate change when it's very much in the news, particularly over the last few days with the president <laughs> yes. here. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to get that in, but I seem to have done. But, um, you know, climate change is, is, is on our lips and in our ears all the time at the moment. So it's such important work. And I think, as you say, to, to be able to link that with what's actually physically going on in the South is so important. Yes, absolutely. And what happens in the Antarctic does affect our weather and, and what actually happens here. But it was quite interesting because before I went to the Hay Festival, I was talking to our uh, comms group and saying, you know, I need to talk about communication. I've got three minutes. And they're saying, well, one thing you should mention is fatigue, news fatigue. People do get fed up of hearing about things. Even though we have this amazing scenery, fantastic animals, the cute, cuddly stuff, whatever, that people love to see. Mm. You can't stick that on the news every single week. People get tired about it. So you have to kind of feed things in work out what the most important stories are what your points are to try Mm. and stop that fatigue really which is you know it's a shame but yes I hadn't thought about it like that I think we've linked it so much with some particular personalities that we have forgotten the reality of of what's going on and and the actual impact of those tiny small creatures and yeah, organisms that, that are going to impact on what happens here. Absolutely, and it's the first time I'd really thought about that because, you know, in the past I've been to the, the comms group and said, oh, I've got this paper published in this fantastic journal, you know, can we do a press story? And they kind of go, we're a bit busy this week. And you kind of go, oh, not again, because, you know, they've got some fantastic logistics story about, you know, uh, the Thwaites Glacier and people out digging snow with these amazingly big machines and mm. small sea urchins just... Don't really don't cut, cut the eyes. <laughs> no competition, I'm afraid. <laughs> but it is su- it's such an important aspect, isn't it? And I think, as you say, you're, I mean, it's it is amazing that that uh, here we are feeling fatigue about finding out about the the basis of climate change is is a little worrying. I think. So, what next for you? I mean, have you in terms of it's following your projects and, and monitoring your students? Is is that the way it works next? Yes, really. It's just developing science ideas, trying to bring in more funding. And, you know, that's getting more difficult these days, it it has to be said, (laughs) with the B word. Yes. uh, Because we are, you know, quite reliant on European funding. So that is a big worry, Mm. Uh, particularly, I'm sure, you know, in Cambridge, I'm Mm. sure you've talked to a lot of people. So, yeah, that's it. I mean, um, I do also do other work that isn't necessarily Antarctic related so I am involved and actually in actual fact I led a project looking at how mollusks produce shells. Oh right. So we know there's been a lot of talk about ocean acidification and the fact that animals with heavily calcified skeletons are vulnerable because the more acidic waters will dissolve their shells. And we've got some clams in the Antarctic which are actually quite big and 
Um, they keep getting bashed by icebergs, they repair quite easily. But the question we had was, well, presumably they're quite vulnerable, but we don't really know how they make their shells in the first place, therefore it's difficult to work out how they'll respond okay. to climate change, particularly ocean acidification. And so I, I took that project, which was actually a PhD student's project, and wrote a European project to develop that and look at different aspects of how mollusks produce shells in uh, commercial shellfish species, so blue mussels, clams, scallops, and oysters, which was incredibly successful. And it has to be said, great fun, because you can actually eat what you study <laughs> for a change. I didn't think you were going to say that, but what a thought. Well, if you grow these mussels on these ropes and things, something's well, got Exactly, and once you've sampled a tiny piece of tissue, there is some left, which, you know, would be... <laughs> Wasteful just to throw away. It, it has would. to be said. Can't be right. No. <laughs> I've now got this wonderful image of, of that's what you're doing at Bass is just growing mussels and eating them all day. <laughs> Unfortunately, the project's finished, but you know I keep trying to <laughs> find funding to continue that because I think it's a, a fascinating area yeah. and there's there's so much still to learn about how these animals actually function yes. day to day. Yes, um, because. We know that for a few model organisms like humans, mice, rats, fruit flies. But in the natural environment, we actually know very little about how animals function day to day and how that's affected by climate change. It's extraordinary, isn't it, that we just we don't do that. And as you say, it all comes back to this fatigue and, and our, you know, we, we know a lot about about jungles. We know a lot about furry animals, but actually our whole world is is dependent on all of those tiny things that are going on underneath the waves. To be honest, if you spoke to a microbiologist, they would claim that it's all down to the bacteria because they take up the biggest biomass on the planet. Yeah, so, sure. So, so they would argue, I'm probably wasting my time as well. <laughs> <laughs> but it is the microscopic stuff that's important, but that feeds up through the food yes, chain. absolutely. And we have to understand the food chain and the food web. Yes. As to how our oceans will fare in the future. Wow. Gosh, that's a big topic to let to end on. It's so important. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. When do you go south next then? I honestly don't know at the moment. It it really does depend on, on funding yes. and I don't go that often. Yeah. But hopefully I'll I'll manage to go again in the future because it's an absolutely stunning place to go. Rather a research base where I work is an amazing place. The scenery's stunning, so I'd kind of like to go back. Thank you. And thank you very much. Thank, thank you for having me. And that was Women Making Waves contributor Jan Moore talking to Professor Melody Clark.